The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Kobutakis, Internet Lawfare with an episode of Rational Security for June 11, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, the Air Quality Fuchsia Edition. This week, Alan Rosenstein, Quinta Jurassic, and Scott R. Anderson talk through the week's national security news stories, including the destruction of the Kakovka Dam in Ukraine, updates on Special Counsel Jack Smith's investigation into former President Trump, and the new landscape of the race for the Republican presidential nomination. This is Rational Security. So Scott and Quinta, I am sorry that the end times appear to have come to DC. How are you? How are you holding up? Yes, the air quality here is a uh, whopping. Let's see, a hundred and eighty-four on the Ooh. AQI, which is a very unpleasant-looking sort of purplish red on Apple weather. When your do sky is fuchsia, do not walk outside. Well, so it's actually a, so out of my window, at least in Northwest DC, it looks fine. It's just like kind of hazy, overcast, kind of. Yeah, I, I wouldn't think anything about it if I didn't know that something was wrong and if it didn't smell kind of weird but some of the pictures that you see out of new york and baltimore are quite apocalyptic they say in new york city today or yesterday that being outside all day and just breathing there would be like smoking six cigarettes and i was like oh that reminds me when i lived in new york city (laughs) now i spend most of my days in my early 20s Yeah, to, to be to be clear, I, I think like living in any urban area is like smoking one cigarette a day. It's none of Probably. this is ideal. I am reminded during any air quality scare of my favorite story of all time, which was the summer after, I think it was the summer after 9-11 or maybe the year after, uh, which was when I was in high school, I was doing my mom a solid and driving her and a bunch of random friends and friends of friends of her and my dad to like an event across town. And we're driving around, we're just talking about the news and I, oh no, it, was, it must've been a few years later. Cause I remember I was working at the state department. So I was working in foreign policy related things. And one of her friends who was in the front seat while I drove was like, this is so crazy. This terrorism stuff is so bad. And I'm like, yeah, it is. It is bad. You're right. I'm not <laughs> thanks, pro. Thanks for coming to my TED talk. And this red alert is crazy. And I'm like, red alert. I didn't realize we're on red alert. Yeah. It's just like, I heard in the news today, we're on red alert. It says they're targeting young children, the elderly and people with asthma. And I'm like, how do they, how do they, knew, how do they even know who has asthma? And I was like, oh, Bin Laden's man. dastardly oh, plan. Those, so that good. dastardly Osama Bin Laden. Oh, <laughs> Two steps ahead. So Slowest motion terrorist attack of all time. That's eco terrorism, folks. 
Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, back here in the virtual studio today, not IRL, with my two other co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are all cowering inside, hiding from the vicious waves of miasma that are spreading over our region here in Washington, D.C., and maybe Minnesota, too. It's fine in Minnesota. It's fine. You're so in much Minnesota. closer to Canada. What are those Canadians doing? This whole yeah, Coriolis effect is really screwing over it, the coastal it's, areas. It's weird about the the air currents. We do often, actually, usually once or twice a year, get the Canadian wildfire smoke. But for some reason, this one has diverted around us. So we're, we're okay for the moment. Well, I'm sure I'm sure your day will come, um, but I'm excited to <laughs> Thanks, be able to, I mean, not in a too ominous way, but let's be honest, it's coming for all of us one day, oh, going back God. to that mortality strain that's got to run underneath this whole podcast. Oh, but besides that, uh, let us turn to the news, because despite the air quality, despite us cowering inside, it has been a week in national security news, to say the least, lots and lots of very big stories. I'm excited to talk it over with you all and with you, the listener, for what we are calling the Air Quality Fuchsia Edition in honor of our present conditions that lead us to this remote recording session. Our first topic, downstream effects. The destruction of the Kakofa Dam in Ukraine promises a new wave of suffering and environmental devastation for Ukrainians living along the Dnieper River. Who is responsible and what could the ramifications be? Topic two. He's off to meet the wizard, the wonderful wizard of laws. That's really good. That's really we're, good. Scott. We are so committed to calling Jack Smith a wizard. Put wizard. on the rose. Put the picture. rose back on. There is a visual element to this, but if you've not, you listener have not found Jack Smith's picture in his purple hag robes, check it out. It looks straight Harry Potter. It's pretty amazing. So good. Regardless, over the past few weeks, there has been a very steady drip of information about special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into former President Trump investigations, I should say, leading many to conclude that an, at least one indictment is on the horizon. What do we know about the state of the investigation and where does it seem to be headed? And topic three, party animals. The number of contenders in the 2024 Republican presidential primary has officially doubled, with new candidates like Chris Christie and Mike Pence presenting, or being unable to avoid, the legacy of January 6th in New Light, uh, among other issues with the direction of the party under former President Trump's leadership. What does this mean for the shape of the race? What will it mean, more importantly for our purposes, for the debate over democratic values that it necessarily entails? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So it's been uh, quite a week already in Ukraine. Tuesday, uh, there was a massive explosion at the Novokakovka Dam, um, which is along the Dnipro River, um, and apparently is one of the largest dams in Europe. It holds back water that's about the size of the Great Salt Lake in Utah. The uh, explosion in the dam caused flooding that has led to thousands of people needing to evacuate. There are some just stunning photos of the flooding in Ukrainian cities like Kherson, which are essentially underwater. Um, you know, just the roofs are are above the waterline. It's not totally clear what happened here. The reporting indicates that this seems to have been an intentional explosion just from the dam explosion experts who apparently exist, who the New York Times quoted, um, just the way that the dam sort of fell apart. It's not clear who is responsible, though. So the Dnipro is sort of a dividing line right now between Ukrainian and Russian forces. Uh, Ukraine holds the West Bank. Russia holds the East Bank. Both sides are blaming each other. 
there are reasons that you can kind of make up for why either side would want to do this. On the Ukrainian side, they're planning a counteroffensive, um, which I believe has already sort of formally begun. And the breaking of the dam could have the effect of cutting off water to the Crimean Peninsula, which is, of course, uh, illegally held by Russia. On the Russian side, obviously breaking the dam creates huge problems for Ukrainian civilians, and there was some indication that it might have led to problems at the uh, Zaporizhia uh, nuclear plant um, since the, the water was required for cooling uh, the nuclear material at the plant. Um, it seems like that we are out of the woods on that one, at least according to the, the Ukrainian government. So that is good news. But all in all, it's a pretty catastrophic story. And whoever chose to take this uh, step really decided to just put it all out there in, I think, a pretty bad way. Um, so Scott, I want to turn it over to you first. First, for your thoughts on you know who might have done this and why, but I also wanted to ask about the implications under international humanitarian law, because my first thought when I read the story was that a dam is civilian infrastructure and that targeting it is therefore illegal under the laws of war or whoever is responsible. Is that right? That certainly could be right. I mean, there are times where you can target what might be considered civilian infrastructure, for example, if there's an element of dual use or if it has a legitimate military purpose. But dams and nuclear facilities, actually both, fit into a special category of rules for items that have a particularly high ramifications with a high rate of consequence for civilian populations. They're actually identified expressly in this rule. It's codified in Article 56 of uh, Additional Protocol 1 of the Geneva Conventions, um, which is not always universally accepted, although of the additional protocols, it's the most widely accepted. Um, perhaps more importantly, it's considered to reflect in most parts customary international law. So most states, including the United States, generally accept it applies, even if it's not really uh, a treaty body that the, the the states have subscribed to. In this case, Russia uh, and Ukraine, I believe, are both the parties to AP1. I should double check that, but I believe that's right. But the key point here is that these are the types of items that you're really, really not supposed to be targeting at all under this rule, even where you have a legitimate military purpose, except where they're being used very directly for extraordinary military uses by the other side. So let's say, uh, you know, maybe you had a, you know, artillery units stationed on top of a dam, right? And that unit was particularly damaging, particularly threatening to some essential military interests. That itself maybe could rise to the threshold. I think even that would probably fall short. I'm actually having trouble kind of thinking of an easy hypothetical. Um, maybe if they're using a nuclear weapon, a nuclear power plant to generate a nuclear weapon and you felt, oh, we need to take out this nuclear weapon, right? Maybe that's the sort of scenario we're talking about. But it's supposed to be an extreme condition where you're even allowed to target these sorts of entities. So targeting them is very clearly a sort of violation, um, you know, a question as to whether this is a war crime kind of in the jurisdiction of the ICC or something along those lines uh, is kind of a little more challenging question. I would have to think of first, the first part would have to be really clearly intent. Uh, you, you would have to have a much stronger evidence of uh, the idea that this was an intended outcome um, of these actions. This can't just be corollary of saying, oh, we were trying to hit a military target. We we're trying to do something, uh, you know, hit a 
facility next to the dam and accidentally hit the dam. That might still violate Geneva Conventions because you're saying, well, you're not supposed to take that sort of risk, but you may not have done it deliberately. Deliberately destroying this to have these sorts of civilian consequences, I think could rise to a war crime level. I'm less confident whether it would fall within the ICC's jurisdiction. I'd have to think about that slash look into it because I don't know the ICC's jurisdiction like the back of my head, my hand. But it's the sort of thing that you could see, I suspect, international criminal liability be attached to in general practice, if not by the ICC, setting aside ICC's other jurisdictional issues regarding Ukraine, Russia, things like that. The really main question here, though, is is whether anyone did this. I think there's kind of three questions. One, did anyone do this, period? Um, it's not implausible that the dam could have been damaged and this is a result of that damage. There are reports of explosions. That seems inconsistent here. But it's also not clear who exactly this helps. I mean, this damages a lot of Ukrainian territory, but damages a lot of Russian-held territory, and it has long-term consequences, at least by the assessments I've heard, for Crimea, you know, the part of Ukraine that Russia seems most intent on holding. Um, And in particular, one of the things that's most imminently damaged by this are all these fortifications that Russia has built into its side of Dnipro River to prepare for eventual Ukrainian onslaught. So there are reports that the you know, conflicting reports. Some people said, oh, Ukrainians did this because they want to make it easier to launch a naval assault on the Russian side of the river. The Ukrainians said, no, the Russians did this because they want to make it harder because it actually makes it harder to do a maritime landing here because where we would land is so chaotic and flooded and full of obstacles. It makes it much more difficult. The truth is, I don't think it's really clear whose strategic interest this serves at this point. So you really have to ask, you know, what what is the mission behind this? Maybe if Russia were like ready to ditch this whole slice of Ukraine and less concerned about the somewhat slightly more remote consequences for Crimea, just willing to eat those. That's the one way it could play into their strategic interest. But otherwise, it looks like there might have been an element of miscalculation, maybe miscommunication, or just error. Um, There were military strikes in this area before, artillery close to the dam, and dams, surprisingly, are like kind of high-maintenance institutions. You need constant surveillance of their conditioning, constant repair, constant updating, particularly when they're older, like this one dates from 1955 or 56, as I recall. This came up in the context of the ISIS conflict in 2014, 2015 with Mosul Dam. And the concern was that perhaps ISIS might go ahead and you know destroy the dam. But a big concern also is that the Mosul Dam was in bad shape and needed constant maintenance and repair. And that was very hard to do when it was in ISIS control. And so it could lead to the destruction of the dam there just if it was neglected. Something like that might have happened here, too. Um, I don't think we really know. We do need to wait for intelligence agencies and other other investigators to kind of reach some more informed conclusions before we jump to any conclusion about who's responsible. So that's a really helpful um, analysis of of the situation, Scott. I, I mean, on the question of responsibility, I, I think our strong prior should be that this was Russia um, for a number of reasons. I, I think two in particular. One, I think, is that Russia has shown a real callous disregard for human life and infra- and civilian infrastructure and the laws of war and all of that stuff I think you know much much more so than than Ukraine and so this is uh, you know more of a piece of that and second um although uh, you know all, all your points I think are valid with respect to this doesn't necessarily help the Russians that much because it makes their lives harder it clearly hurts the Ukrainians more than it hurts anyone else right because at the end of the day Ukraine is not just trying to win several battles or even win this war it's trying to in the long term, have a functioning country with good infrastructure. And this is just a disaster, right? It's a disaster immediately. It's, you know, if the Ukrainians did this, it would be just an incredible betrayal of its own population of the hundreds of thousands who are displaced. It would be a, an incredible self-crippling of its um, agricultural productivity uh, because a lot of this flooded land is right in the heartland of uh, where Ukraine does the most 
uh, agriculture. Ukraine is often called the breadbasket of Europe. It's, you know, probably the most important Ukrainian export. And and to sort of mess with that is sort of almost inconceivable. Um, so for, for all these reasons, you know, if this is intentional, it's it's much more likely to be to be Russia than Ukraine. On the other hand, um, there is some very awkward timing uh, with respect to uh, other reporting that we're discovering uh, or other reporting that's coming out about Ukraine, Ukraine's willingness to attack infrastructure in this war. Just on, on Tuesday, um, the Washington Post, friend of the pod, Shane Harris, you know, co- co-wrote a piece reporting that there's increasing intelligence that the uh, a sabotage attack on the Nord Stream pipeline that was carried out uh, I, I think in, in uh, yeah, it was carried out sometime last year, um, and there was a lot of suspicion that it was Russia, was actually probably Ukrainian special forces uh, in reporting directly to the head of Ukrainian armed, armed forces, you know, cutting Zelensky out of the loop so he could have plausible deniability. I mean, really damning reporting. Um, a lot of this actually is, is coming out of the, uh, the, the crazy Discord leak uh, story that we covered a, a, few, uh, a few weeks ago. Now, you know, whatever you think about the appropriateness of the Nord Stream attack um and i think that's probably a very bad idea you know it, this is it's not it's not great for this to come out right now uh, because at the very least it gives the russians a a talking point and you know as as much as i think we are all on team ukraine it is important to to hold the ukrainians to account as well when when they sort of act in ways that are sort of really problematic and so it's just it's just it's not it's not great timing for the supporting to to come out given that it'd be much more convenient if we could all just focus 100% on 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 russia right now there's also, I think it's worth mentioning, in addition to the Nord Stream, there's the apparent assassination of Dasha Degina, the daughter of the Russian sort of weirdo propagandist Alexander Dugin, who is actually, despite his outsized presence in Western press, because he's crazy and people, he gives good quotes. Rasputin, that, Rasputin well, 2.0. Well, right, but like Rasputin actually had influence, whereas Dugin is just like a weird guy kind of saying weird stuff. But in any event, so I guess what I'm saying is if you're going to do a war crime, pick a better target, question mark. Um, but uh, Dugina, you know, she was a civilian. She appears to have been targeted by the Ukrainians. That, you shouldn't do that. Uh, there's also the recent assassination of a Russian pro, pro-Putin sort of military blogger, uh, Vladlen Tatarsky, who was assassinated with an explosion in a, a statuette of himself that was handed to him that contained a bomb. Yes. So that, I think, has also don't, been traced. Don't order self-statuettes. It's actually kind know. of a sad story because I think that the there was a Russian woman who handed it to him who has said that she thought that it contained like a listening device or something like that and didn't realize that it was a bomb. Yeah, exactly. And didn't realize that she was signing up for uh, decades in prison. Um, yeah. Um, so anyway, you know, th- those are both examples of actions that, I don't know, Scott, you can tell me if I'm wrong, seem to go pretty far beyond the pale um, in terms of the laws of, of war. And certainly I don't, I was going to say, I don't want to do a both sides, except that is kind of what we're doing. But in terms of, right, the, if you divide the use ad bellum and the use in bello questions, right, and say that we're focusing just on the use in bello these uh, actions that are apparently by Ukraine and maybe by Ukraine in the case of the dam, although we don't know, uh, I agree, are raise questions. Is that fair, Scott? They do. You know, there are arguments you can made, make about not 
well, at least of Alexander Dugan, uh, if he was the actual target versus his daughter, which I don't think we know which one was actually the target. Um, uh, and I don't know about the blogger case, but I've, I've heard people make argument that you can make arguments because of the relationship between some of these actors and the Russian state that you could make an argument they're legitimate military targets. I, I'm not entirely persuaded by that, but there's at least a little bit of gray area because they are part of this government complex that's clearly steering the war and motivating and driving some sort of war efforts. Uh, and particularly, there's also like the intersection with the state sector, which is a little confusing. Um, you know, I, I would not, like I said, I'm not going to co-sign any of these theories, but people have made them uh, and I've made them to me, uh, who I think are good on these issues. So I at least think there's credible arguments out there to be considered. The more problem to me is actually like the strike the other week that hit a, a civilian residence in Moscow, right? This hasn't really gotten as much attention because it didn't kill anyone. It was like caused a fire at an upper floor unit in Moscow. But you heard all these reports and people from uh, quoting Ukrainian officials saying things like, we want the Russians to feel like they're at war. It's important that they feel like they're at war. That sounds a lot like you're doing this on purpose and deliberately targeting civilians. Yeah, is very clearly the thing that your number one thing you're not supposed to be doing um, just for the sake of making them feel like they're at war. There's similar accounts about people sending rockets into parts of Russia closest to Ukraine on the same principle and hitting military targets, but maybe military targets that are closer to civilian areas and more visible to civilians. Yeah, so I, I, I'm I, I'm curious about that, Scott. So, so first of all, yeah, one should not attack civilians, obviously. Uh, and and yeah, yeah. Th welcome to my TED talk. Th th thanks for coming. We to my TED endorse talk. the Geneva Convention. We do, we do. National that's our, security that's our, stamp of approval. That's our hot take. Uh, I, I guess my question, Scott, is is whether there's any sort of like I don't know, maybe proportionality escape valve isn't the right word, but I mean, it, I, I guess I guess I'm just trying to think like from the perspective of the Ukrainians, you know. And and saying, look, like we need the Russian people to understand because we know that however much of an autocracy Russia is, like at the end of the day, you know, everyone is responsive to public opinion, right? Even the most iron-fisted autocrat. And so, you know, we think that harassing the Russian population, you know, a little bit, right, enough to make them understand that they can't just ignore this war forever, but uh, not so much as to do anything even comparable to the sort of harm that the Russians are doing to the Ukrainian citizenry. I mean, is is there is there no case to be made that this is a sort of proportional response given the quite literal existential threat Ukraine is facing? And and, and to be clear, right, like like I you know I, I would not include Ukrainians like bombing a dam to be part of this, right? Um, but like, as you pointed out, right, I mean, they sent a drone and lit an apartment building on fire, which again is really bad. Like, I just want to be very, very clear. It's really bad. But like this whole situation is really bad. So I'm just sort of curious, I guess that's kind of a legal matter in particular, whether or not there's sort of any argument here or no, just, there isn't. There's not. There isn't. Okay. And there shouldn't be. Uh, look, I mean, the simple truth is this illusion that, you know, Russians don't feel like they're at war. Are they experiencing the same thing that the Ukrainians are? No, of course not. N nor do we want them to. You're not supposed to be able to just level out the level of civilian suffering because it's being inflicted on one party on, on the other. It, Which is the whole point of the dividing the use in bellum and use at bellum, right? In part, yeah, among other purposes. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the reason you don't want to do that, because it's just very easy to slip in that logic at any point. You get an escalating cycle uh, of each side feeling that they are beleaguered in certain ways. The other party, by some metric they dream up, hasn't felt enough, and we're going to inflict it back on them. Now, this case does seem pretty severe, but I also don't think it's right to assume like Russian people are insulated from the results of the conflict. They've got crippling economic sanctions that are actually impacting their economy substantially. You've got people being conscripted, horrible phone calls about Russians calling back to their family members, 
in tears and devastated about the fact they're being asked to commit atrocities in Ukraine uh, and to put their lives on the line. Like people are feeling this in Russia. And I think that's a, a kind of toxic logic that people need to push back against uh, fairly aggressively, honestly. Um, do I get it? I 100% get it. I fire Ukraine. I'd be incredibly angry um, and frustrated by the fact there's no clear accountability for Russia on these incidents yet. And it's hard because Russia is a nuclear power and a major military power, and there's limits to how much people are willing to confront them outside the context of Ukraine um, and are likely to be moving forward. But I think it's very, very hard to justify this sort of things. And perhaps more importantly, even these disproportionate cases really do are going to make it hard for the international community to support Ukraine to the same extent if they keep happening. It, it will not take much. Proportionality just doesn't have an argument in this case. You're already going to be under pressure from uh, you know, Republicans in the United States, not all Republicans, but the continued that's kind of hostile to assistance to Ukraine. You've already got countries in Africa uh, and other parts of the world that are trying to tread a line between Russia and Ukraine, trying to draw equivalency, incentivized to do so they can maintain ties with Russia, push back against efforts to join uh, economic sanctions. That make this make all that harder for Ukraine. So you're not helping by doing this. You hit a legitimate military target, hit targeted ones, even ones that might have a psychological impact. Sure, that's fine. But treading really far outside the lines, even in a handful of cases, is only going to hurt the cause. Uh, and it's not a wise thing for Ukraine to start doing. Scott, this is a question for you. I mean, my sense is like the temptation to fall into that cycle and make the other the civilians on the other side hurt is why there are rules. Like that's why exactly. rules exist. So that when there's a situation in which you might be motivated to do a thing you shouldn't do, there's a rule that says don't do that, right? Like the the whole point of having this structure of the I mean we're talking specifically about international law, but you could apply it to like traffic laws or any kind of rule that you like, right, even outside the legal system, is to constrain behavior in a way that is built out before the conflict or the bad situation comes into place. Like, that's the whole point of it. And so I think that's, it makes a great deal of sense to sort of return to this as a, you know, of course, it prohibits things that you might want to do. That's the point of a rule. That's totally right. Uh, And it's complicated here, because the other party is clearly disobeying it. Russia is doing things that are violative of this all the time. And, and it's worth noting, international law generally, like there are grounds on which you can suspend certain types of obligation, like treaty obligations. If uh, another party is in violation of their treaty obligations, you can uh, you know, suspend that treaty. Uh, there are cases where you might be able to pursue countermeasures to encourage them to come back into alignment with their national legal obligations. That's not the way the law of armed conflict is thought of operating. That's it's, It is not, you, you're not only obligated to protect your enemies to the extent that they protect yours very deliberately so that you avoid that sort of moral creep. Um, you know, these laws were written by a generation that lived through the worst conflict in human history, uh, at least arguably. Um, and they decided, despite having lived and made very hard decisions about real military necessity, these rules were worth it. And I think that's a pretty compelling testimony to the importance of these rules, even in dire situations, and should make people very hesitant to, to begin to walk back from them. So speaking of dams breaking and bodies of water flowing where they shouldn't be, let's talk about Mar-a-Lago and documents and the pool. 
which I got to say, when I when I read the uh, the headline about the pool, I thought it was like a press pool. I was so confused. It took me like three paragraphs to realize that there was an actual swimming pool involved. Okay, so let me explain what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quinta. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, so yeah, as, as Alan will explain, uh, somebody reportedly drained a pool in Mar-a-Lago, which flooded a server room that had uh, servers that contained surveillance tape, which the FBI had previously subpoenaed. Make of that what you will. Um, <laughs> but as, as Scott can attest, we were recording a podcast about this the other day, which you can listen to in the Lawfare podcast. And when the story broke, I literally couldn't keep a straight face while reading it. I think I kept breaking down in laughter because it's so absurd. Okay. All right. So let's 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 step back. Let's put all the stupid under one under one intro. Um, okay. So there are in some indications that the uh, special counsel Jack Smith, Wizard Jack Smith. I would just also like to say I I am positive that there are plenty of DOJ people who listen to this podcast. We really value you all. Please, someone tell Jack Smith that we all call him a wizard and we love him and it's like all compliments. I want his reaction. I just want someone back channel to me what Jack Smith thinks about this and where he keeps the purple robes and okay. where we should where we should send his pointy hat. Where we should send his pointy hat. Yes. <laughs> At the, I gotta say, uh, uh, as a sidebar, uh, DOJ does does awards um, every year, and there are two types of awards, and I don't know the difference except that one is a round award and one is a pointy award. They're like these plaques. <laughs> I will say, I have a pointy award. I'm very, I'm very pleased with myself, um, and I, I think that you Jack too Smith, are a wizard. I think Jack Smith. I'm sure will get many awards for this, and and I hope that he gets like a someone does like a special pointy wizard hat award. Okay, all that being said, so there are indications that the special counsel investigation into the um, mishandling and unauthorized retention. And at this point, let's be real, just just straight up obstruction of justice uh, with respect to um, uh, Trump's documents found at uh, Mar-a-Lago and other places is uh, heating up. Trump's lawyers uh, or several Trump's lawyers reportedly went to DOJ earlier this week and had a two hour conversation with uh, prosecutors which is the sort of thing you do when you believe your client is about to be indicted. And this is a last ditch attempt to get the government uh, not to indict your uh, your client. Uh, that suggests that we're getting pretty close, though at the same time, um, there's reporting that a grand jury has been impaneled in Florida uh, to also investigate the uh, document issues. Uh, the, the grand jury that had been running this had previously been in uh, Washington, D.C. They'd been doing the bulk of the witness interviewing. They apparently have stopped interviewing witnesses in the past few weeks. And now this has moved to Florida, which raises questions about whether or not this is just to uh, deal with issues of venue or whether or not we're starting on like phase 47 of this investigation. And then, of course, there's this amazing story about the pool. And apparently a pool was flooded and it went into the server room. So I, I really want to start with the pool. Um, because it's just so fabulous. And I want to ask you, Quinta, do you think this is a situation? I think I think uh uh what have I called this? Jurassic's Jurassic's razor. I, I know you did not you did not uh come up with the uh with the rule, but I love it. But I love it too much to call it anything but Jurassic's razor, which I think is that the um with with in Trump land, the stupidest explanation is always the right one. And here I think the stupidest explanation is like some ding dong, like drained a pool stupidly. Do, what do you think? Do you think this was a bozo or do you think this is like <laughs> 12th dimensional chess of yeah of, so we should i should give evidence. proper credit to josh marshall at talking points memo who uh, i think coined this and termed it trump's razor i don't know right i mean I, you can kind of argue it either way um chris geidner who is a, a great legal writer who writes the newsletter law dork had a, a very funny tweet that was pointing out that this is sort of the quintessential 
you know, stage in a Trump investigation. Um, I can't find the precise tweet right now, but essentially Chris was arguing that like someone does something stupid that may or may not be meant to obstruct an ongoing investigation, but, and may or may not have that effect, but it could have that effect, but in the end it doesn't actually do anything, but it does deepen suspicion as the investigation goes on. It's kind of like stupid from all possible angles, right? Like if this was intentional, it doesn't seem to have hugely worked insofar as at least some of the surveillance footage or most perhaps of the surveillance footage appears to have been intact. Although I think there are some questions about whether there's material that wasn't handed over that perhaps could have been damaged. Um, So if it was intentional, (laughs) it wasn't effective. Uh, If it wasn't intentional, then congratulations, you just accidentally created another reason for (laughs) the special counsel's office to look askance at you and everyone around you. Um, The whole thing is just incredible. I will say if this is not, if it was not intentional, it is a real stroke of bad luck that draining the pool apparently diverts into a room full of computers, which is, I don't know anything about plumbing, but that feels like an unusual setup to me. (laughs) All of which is to say, you know, another, another law of Trump is that it can always get stupider, right? And I feel like that's really been borne out here. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So the pool, the pool part is the most entertaining side the, of the, the story. The pool party. Let's call it the pool the party. The pool party. The pool party. We, one might call it Watergate. Oh, Watergate. There boo. you go. There you go. It is, as far as we know, so far, a little bit of a the weird novel distraction of what has been like a very substantive week of disclosures about this investigation, where we've seen kind of in the press multiple really detailed parts of the case that the Justice Department is building up or around Donald Trump, specifically around one incident. Basically, the idea that when the Donald Trump and the people who work for Mar-a-Lago invited Jay Bratt, the DOJ official, to come to Mar-a-Lago, this is before the search in August. This is in like late May or June. I can't remember the exact date. The day before Bratt arrived, uh, Mark Corcoran, the lawyer for Donald Trump, came and did a search of this storage locker where these boxes were said, here are the documents I found, gave them back to Brat the next day and then let Brat look at this locker. And what we're hearing now is that they've collected evidence that the boxes were moved into that locker just an hour or two before Corcoran actually got to search it, that Corcoran was not allowed very broad access to Mar-a-Lago or to decide where he was allowed to search for documents, was in fact severely limited in doing so by Boris Epstein, uh, interlocutor for former President Trump, who 
whose interference led another member of the legal team to resign in the last few weeks uh, over alleged conflicts with him. That they may have testimony from at least one Mar-a-Lago employee who helped Walt Nauda, uh, who is the former valet for White House valet for former President Trump, now out of aid of him, actually move these boxes into this closet uh, like an hour or two before Brad showed up there. And may or may not, depending on the state of this pool leak, have security camera footage revealing who moved things in and out of this closet at the time. And then you have this very cagely worded assertion to the Justice Department that came out of this meeting saying, we've searched all the files that came from Washington, D.C. to Mar-a-Lago. These are the only classified documents we found signed, not written by Corcoran, but not signed by him. Curious as to why, I suspect because he wasn't comfortable signing it, uh, despite having been the person who conducted the search of that closet, instead handed to Christina Bob, who signed them as custodian for Trump's records, kind of on his behalf, but not really as custodian, whatever the heck that means, right? That And that was then proven to be false later in August when the FBI marched in with a search warrant and found lots and lots of more classified documents, right? That's a pretty damning, detailed narrative about the case the Justice Department has brought. I think it strongly suggests that they have a case, they've laid it out, and they've shared it with someone, and probably in advance of prosecution. Now, maybe this is all coming from like grand jury members. Maybe you got a really chatty grand jury member who's not supposed to be talking about this stuff who is, but that seems unlikely. It'd be very unlikely for this this volume of materials really to come from the FBI or the Justice Department, um, because that would be a leak that would be easy for them to, to squelch, and they'd be putting their career in very serious jeopardy by doing something. This stuff almost always comes from defense teams. And so if the defense team is aware of this, this means that probably the Justice Department has approached Trump legal team or whoever else might be in legal jeopardy on this, but Trump seems to be the locus of it and said, here's the case we have. Do we need to talk about maybe a plea or do you, so you at least know, here's what we're intending to bring to the grand jury. It's not unusual to do these sorts of presentments and conversations with them because you know the case you're going to bring to the grand jury. And it gives them a chance to make counter arguments that maybe will save you the time, uh, or maybe it brings things to a plea faster. In a politically sensitive case like this, you probably want to check all the boxes and give you know every procedural benefit of a doubt to the other side. So that's, what, that's why people think this is a sign that this has happened. And the meeting with Merrick Garland and Trump's lawyers that happened earlier this week seems to be the icing on the cake on that. Because the one thing that if the special counsel is intent on bringing bringing charges that can stop him is the attorney general. Although the attorney general has a very deferential standard of review that he's supposed to apply to. So it seems very unlikely Merrick Garland would, but it's kind of your last Hail Mary pass to, to head this off at the pass. So this is why a lot of people think, I think correctly, that this means there's probably an indictment coming down the pike around this issue, particularly like this kind of obstruction retention of documents. We also have this issue of a tape with Donald Trump. I don't want to go too far afield. There's also other threads of investigation that are worth talking about. But at least around this, this is the sort of stuff that for people to get into the public field after a pretty quiet couple months of this investigation, seems clearly they're talking to defense attorneys about this stuff. That sound right to you, to you, Quinta? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I know Alan has another question, but I just want to jump in first. So I do think that, as you say, generally it is a the rule of thumb is that quotes, uh, anonymous quotes in the news uh, and stories, are sourced to defendants or counsel the defendants. And I'll recommend a great uh, piece that Ben Wittes wrote during the midst of the Mueller investigation. That's you can read on Lawfare. That's called "How to Read a News Story About an Investigation's Eight Tips on Who Is Saying What." Such an invaluable piece. It's I so like, it's I so found good. Myself reading that over and over again. It's, it's an incredible era. resource, and I think a really important point here is just that there are a lot of witnesses here. <laughs> like there are a lot of people who the special counsel's office has spoken to, like random Mar-a-Lago workers who saw Weltnata reportedly move the boxes, right? Um, and therefore, there are a lot of defense lawyers who might be interested in in talking to the press. Um, and so I do think that that's sort of important to keep in mind when we're thinking about where these stories are coming from. 
So I have not actually read that piece that you referenced that Ben wrote, uh, but I will read it too sweet. And I will also put it in uh, our show notes so that our listeners can read it too. Okay. So, so let's say, I mean, obviously we, we don't know, right. Um, but let, let's say that Trump is about to be indicted and is ultimately indicted for mishandling of documents. And uh, I would guess also obstruction or lying or something like that. What happens next? I mean, of course, Trump is already under indictment, right? This is kind of amazing. Um, just that this is the new normal. Um, you know, he has been indicted by the Manhattan DA for uh, falsification of, of business records and maybe tax fraud. It's a little unclear there. That investigation or that that indictment is ongoing. It appears to have made no has appears to have had no effect at at all so far on the um, the race. And obviously, we'll talk about the broader GOP race dynamics in the next segment. Um, is there any reason to think that a federal indictment? would have a bigger effect, either because it's federal and not state. And also because, you know, I, I think there's some well-founded, if not skepticism, then a recognition among even those who support the Manhattan DA's actions that this is not like of Trump's legal issues, like the biggest deal. Um, and that the document retention issue is more serious and a little more straightforward, even if, at least I think that it's still not the most important thing he did. And that really, until we get some accountability for January 6th itself, there's a real rule of law problem. But all, all that being said, I just let me throw it out to you, Quinta, Quinta or Scott. Um, you know, if, if tomorrow Jack Smith indicts Donald Trump, does anything change? Scott and I are both like sugar mochi. Um, I mean, like, yes and no, right? I do. So I will say, I do think that, yes, it is true that the document retention issues on the surface are less like democracy focused than January 6th. And that unless and until there is some legal accountability for Trump for January 6th from the special counsel's office, this is all going to have a bit of a vibe of the Al Capone on tax evasion stuff. On the other hand, Al Capone really was invading taxes. And I believe that the tax evasion was in service of like money laundering that was connected to the criminal gang that he was running. So <laughs> I, I think, you know, let's not underplay that, right? Um, and I do think that the Mar-a-Lago case is, speaks to Trump's vision of himself as sort of a supra-constitutional authority uh, from whom all power flows, who cannot be questioned, who retains authority even though he has departed the office of the presidency because in a sort of quasi-fascist mode he derives his power from you know the people right one might say the volk um it's, who, it's almost as if trump is trying to eliminate the distinction between the the two bodies of the president and what? the person one might say um so yeah and so so that that is a very dangerous place to be right and i think you see that in how he talks about like you know, he said that he, you know, these were my documents, they belong to me, I can take them, right? Um, sort of not accepting the legitimacy of the investigation and the authority of the Bureau and now of the special counsel to investigate them. Yeah, I think you see that also in the sort of uh, tacit encouragement or tacit and not so tacit encouragement of violence against the Bureau for investigating him on this, which we saw in the early days of the Mar-a-Lago investigation. If you remember, there were a bunch of threats to FBI offices um, and at least one attack, foiled attack, immediately after the search was conducted. And that is all a really dangerous place to be. And so I do think that 
having some kind of, you know, criminal process for taking those documents is a rule of law matter insofar as it lays down the line that like you are not a uh, sort of authority who derives his power from some kind of parallel, you know, some kind of structure of public approval that is parallel and outside of constitutional strictures. And that does matter. So all of that is true, but just to get a quick, quick follow-up question, like it took you several minutes to explain just now, like why it's so bad that you have these documents because of fascism and because of like, and like, I, I like, you, you know, I love it. I agree with you. Like, but, but isn't the very fact that you had to kind of explain this going to be for, you know, purposes of national politics and certainly geopolitics, like who cares? Like they're, they're documents, like stop, stop, stop confusing me with like, I mean, maybe, but I also, theory. but I, I, I phrased that in the most egghead way possible, right? I mean, I think you could, if you are messaging this as like a political flack, which I am not, um, right? You could say it like Trump, Trump thinks he's above the law. He thinks the rules don't apply to him. He took what didn't belong to him and he put you in danger, right? Like he put our national security in danger because he wanted to do what he thought was best for him. Right. Like, I think you can frame it in a in a way that maybe hits more in the gut. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the danger of the story isn't because it's in federal court versus state court. It's because it's just clear, simple and is embedded in a very different set of priors for Republican politicians. Right. Which is that who are usually pro-national security and concerned about leaks and don't like leaks and aren't friendly to leaks in the media. And that makes this a very easy case to say. Donald Trump took classified documents that put American spies and service members at risk. He put them out in the open where those documents could be made available to our enemies. When the FBI asked for them back, he lied about them and he kept them. That's a really easy story to say. And it feeds into a bunch of priors. And you saw it in how people reacted after the raid. Like a lot of Republican politicians that normally feel obligated to back Trump on a variety of issues came out and were like, well, I don't know what's happening here, but as alleged, this is kind of a problem. We don't like the, you know, jackbooted raiders by the FBI in Mar-a-Lago, but probably shouldn't be holding on these classified documents. And you only hear the deepest echo chambers echoing this these crazier ideas that, oh, Trump was allowed to take these things. Of course, it's going to come out. Those are kind of the unreachable quadrants that you can't judge the effectiveness of a political salience of a, of a particular development on the basis of. I think this is the sort of thing that makes him really vulnerable politically once these facts, as alleged, really come out fully out in the open are fully alleged, or particularly if a jury finds them credible. It's different from January 6th. January 6th can never shake itself uh, of all the political baggage that comes with it and the fact that so many Republican politicians and voters have already signed on to a vision of January 6th where it's okay. And that's incredibly frustrating for people. doesn't mean you don't pursue accountability, but it's never going to be a clean political narrative that's going to make a difference in the political cycle. This is, and that's going to be a big problem for Donald Trump, I think. Yeah. And it's also just to put something I should have mentioned earlier and to put a finer point on what Scott was saying, all of this happened after Trump left office. I mean, he took the documents while he was still in office, but the holding onto them, refusing to give them back, right? Um, that is a post-presidency issue. And I think that that, A, makes it cleaner to prosecute, frankly, because you don't run into the same questions about the scope of executive power under Article 2. And it means that 
there's not like you see Bill Barr was out there on TV the other day. And this is something that he said. He says it like on TV repeatedly. And every time people are like, oh, my God, Bill Barr. But he he was out there saying, you know, Trump's actions were unacceptable. And this is obviously, you know, something that he should be held accountable for and blah, blah, blah. And so I do think that the the fact that you can kind of draw a dividing line between during presidency and post presidency makes it not only legally kind of easier to prosecute, but makes it like psychologically easier for Trump supporters somehow to say like "Eh, that I'm going to draw a line. Like I'm not responsible for that. My hands are clean. Like it's easier for me to condemn him. Well, speaking of flooding pools, the candidate pool for the 2024 presidential race on the Republican side, at least has overfloweth because in the last week or two, we have seen the number of potential candidates for the Republican nomination to the presidency really double, I think. I haven't actually sat down and done the count, but we have entries from a wealthy governor uh, who is coming in really to spend his fortune. We have entries by former vice president. There's, of course, Vice President Mike Pence, a person who comes with a lot of complicated political baggage into this race, a declaration by another former governor, Chris Christie, uh, who's come in fists blazing directly at former President Trump uh, in his, his opening remarks that kind of kicking off his candidacy. It's a really interesting turn, I think, both a sign of how the field is perceiving Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, the two kind of still presumptive frontrunners, and also how we think the debates go, I think at least, uh, how the debate's going to be shaped moving forward, particularly around this issue of the legacy of Donald Trump, what he means for the party and for broader aspects of American politics and American society. Alan, let me start with you on this. You know, what is your sense about what the entry of these additional candidates means for the state of the race and the way we think this contest is going to proceed, including, you know, who it's going to bring to the debate, what issues are going to be raised and how it's going to center and swirl around Donald Trump, which seems kind of inevitable so long as he's a nominee or as long as he's a candidate, excuse me. I mean, I think it's honestly very simple. Every person who gets in the race increases Trump's chances of being the Republican nominee. Like, it's just not that complicated. I think that at this point, there are enough people that it is subject to outside events. So let me let me asterisk that. I'll come back to that. But subject to certain outside events, just from a political dynamics perspective, Trump has like a 100% chance of being the Republican nominee, 110% chance. I mean, it, it, it's just such an like obvious replay of what happened in 2016 that it's it's tragic. Now, The asterisk of outside events, of course, refers to two things, right? One is Trump's legal challenges. Again, I am skeptical that they will actually dissuade the Republican base for voting for him. Um, But you never never know. They might. I mean, maybe something will finally break through after eight years of Trump land, right? Maybe something will finally get turned people off of Trump. I doubt it, but it's possible. The other outside event is, of course, stuff happens, right? Trump is an elderly man. Right. You know, there's a lot of focus on Joe Biden's age, rightly so. But Trump is not exactly a spring chicken. Uh, And although he has a certain um, uh, energy uh, that is, you know, impressive, he's, you know, he's he's not in great health, obviously. Right. You know, uh, so so something could happen at any moment. And of course, um, if either of those two things take Trump out of the race, then the people who have been in the Republican primary longest then have an advantage in fighting amongst themselves, right? Because if Trump were out of the race, then there really is a real open primary, 
right? And I really think open. I, I think DeSantis, for many reasons, has deeply underperformed so far. Um, let's not even talk about the Twitter spaces debacle. But absent Trump, it's a real open race. Now, the, the problem, of course, is that you have a kind of classic coordination problem. It would be better for the Republican, certainly better for the nation, but also, I think, undoubtedly for the Republican Party. They just picked one person, right? Picked Ron DeSantis, pick Nikki Haley, pick I, I, Tim Scott, right? Pick someone and have that person be the alternative to Donald Trump. The problem is that um, there's no way to enforce that coordination. So everyone defects. Everyone there jumps is, There in. is. It's called the Republican primary. Well, well no, there, there, isn't, there isn't a way for the Republican Party to limit the entrance into the Republican primary because the Republican Party, like, frankly, both parties, but especially the Republican Party, is incredibly institutionally weak. So they, they have no way to punish Right. A, you know, the, 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 the ninth Republican GOP candidate who comes in on the off chance that he might or she might win or because it's good for their profile or because they want to get a Fox News anchor job after this. And so you have a situation in which you're just having a repeat of 2016. I think it's all very simple. And the fact that it's insane should not detract us from recognizing that this is like very straightforward, very sad. And again, subject to outside events, like, like, I don't know, you, you want to make a bet, Scott, 10 bucks. No question. Trump is the, is the nominee and it's not even close. I think, I, I think I will take that bet. You take that bet? And okay. I and I don't buy it. Qu Quinta, Quinta, you, you are the witness and the adjudicator for what not even close means. I absolutely would side with Alan on this. I mean, I look, who knows, right? But DeSantis, it's giving Scott oh, Walker energy, you know? <laughs> no, seriously. Like, there there was a Republican Jeb, governor. Ron, exclamation mark. <laughs> there was a Republican governor who everyone decided sort of collectively was going to be the party's, like, next big voice on the national stage. And he just flamed out. Like, running for president is really hard. These guys are not ready for prime time in the way that you, you need to be. And I, I do think that that is really crucial um and it's also part of it is that you know that the party has just boxed itself into this weird position where there are voices out there who are like asa hutchinson for example who are explicitly running on an anti-trump platform right like we do not need trump again here are things that trump has done that i do not like now hutchinson is pretty conservative um i think chris <laughs> My former governor, Chris Christie, has announced his run and I think is intentionally planning to run on a like, here are the things that Trump has done that are bad. We, he, we need he's to He's just going to punch Trump at some point. Like, I feel like his endgame is just punching yeah, Trump yeah. in the debate. Like, New York, New Jersey, be like, baby. I, I have done my job. It's Let's amazing go. how personal that his presidential run is. It's crazy. I'm telling you, New York, New Jersey, Trevor, some traffic problems, oh importantly. Slug it out at the Port Authority. I never thought I would ever, ever root for New Jersey, but here we are. Yes. Um, yeah, I never thought I would root for Chris Christie. Um, so look, so, but so there, there are sort of those candidates, but then there's also a much bigger category of candidates who are trying to run to replace Trump as sort of the party standard bearer, but can't say that they want to do that because the base still supports Trump. So you end up in this like weird situation where you have Nikki Haley saying like, it's time for a new generation. Now, what could that possibly mean? Right. Haley can't run or Kim Scott, for example, right? Like they can't run on, I'm more familiar with Haley, so I'll focus on that. She can't run on uh, taking the, the Confederate flag down. 
um, in South Carolina after the Mother Manual Church shooting because she's trying to appeal to Republican base voters who might want to keep their Confederate flags up. And that's like the big thing that distinguishes her, right? And you see also she's she's been trying out all these kind of awkward lines about, uh, you know, trans athletes driving teen girls to suicide, which is just completely made up, that doesn't like get a lot of applause or anything, but strikes me as trying to kind of, you know, get in there and take some of Ron DeSantis's shtick. DeSantis, meanwhile, is running in this sort of like hardcore, it's not even social conservative, but radical, quote unquote, anti-woke agenda that has appeal within the base of the party, not clear to me at all that it has appeal outside the base. But again, he can't really say like, Donald Trump, you shouldn't vote for Donald Trump because he's been indicted in Manhattan. He's facing at least one, maybe three more indictments. And that's not good for him in the general because people support Trump. And so the party has just put itself in this bizarre position. So let me explain why you guys are wrong, flat out. First off, the the general logic, which is a, a very compelling logic for as to why having too many candidates benefits Donald Trump, and it's a it's a trauma from 2016 that we all are continuing to relive in our heads, relates to the primary structure, which is a predominantly winner take all, particularly in early primaries in the Republican system. That's changed a little bit. 2016, I can't remember exactly the details how, but still basically a winner take all, certainly in the early states. Those elections don't happen until February. That's the first Republican primary, if I recall correctly, 20, 2024. So we've got eight months, nine months uh, until that until that point. Up until then, I actually think it's very beneficial to have a lot of candidates bringing a variety of perspectives, and particularly a variety of perspectives that are challenging for Donald Trump uh, and his agenda. If from the perspective of somebody who's worried about Donald Trump's values uh, and his perspective on, on democracy, more so even than other Republican candidates, although I'm generally you know not not a super big somebody's likely to vote for any Republican candidate, if I'm being honest. But in this case, you know, you want candidates to have to field test their values. If you'd ask people to get behind just one candidate early on, it would be Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis has shown himself to be a seriously flawed candidate as soon as he got road tested in a meaningful way. And that's going to happen as you get later to the primary, as you get close to the actual winner-take-all stage. So you actually need people out there testing themselves, testing different candidates, different narratives, and challenging Donald Trump from different perspectives, which we're really beginning to see with Chris Christie and, frankly, Nikki Haley beginning to ratchet it up a little bit, taking targets at aspects of Trump's record. Is it going to sound like some people may want from a perspective of like January 6th accountability? It's not. It's never going to sound like that in the Republican Party, right? Uh, because that the Republican Party is already very much bought in to a narrative saying what happened during the Trump years was more or less okay, more or less we liked it. Some mixture, some static around the January 6th stuff that makes it a little awkwarder for people, but no one's going to approach it. What you're going to see here are things like Chris Christie did in his, I think, opening kind of remarks and public event we heard in the last few days, where he says, look, it's a real problem when you have people lying to themselves and to you, and it hurts our party. It makes us less likely to win. It means they're corrupt. I mean, he really vocally, directly took on corruption by Trump and his family. And Trump having to answer questions about that on a debate stage is going to be meaningful. And I think there is a potential it still moves votes. I think people get way too embedded in early in with this idea that, oh, this is all settled by our polling numbers this far out. To check this, I pulled out polling numbers from Republican primary uh, in 2015. I actually did it for 2012 as well, um, or 2011, I should say. So like June 7th, which is the day we're recording this, 2015, who do you think was the, Repub- the front runner in the Republican primary? Oh, it was... It was Jeb, I think. Was it not Jeb? 
Who do you think? What do you think, Quinta? Yeah, I'll go with Jeb. I mean, look, polling that far out ahead is notoriously bad, right? Like if you look at the 2008 primary, right? It's like it's Rudy at that point in time. Yeah, exactly. So June 7th at this point, we had uh, Jeb Bush and Mike Huckabee tied at 12% in a Reuters Huckabee! Uh, Ben Ben Carson and Marco Rubio were tied in the other poll covering June 7th from the Economist. Well, right, but but Scott, but Scott, there wasn't a former president running. Who has, who had a hundred percent name recognition and like everyone's views are baked in. I, 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 I get the argument is, you're making. It is not the same as 2016. The difference between being the same and the difference between exe- accepting what we're seeing now as polling numbers as written the stars, it, there's just two no, different I'm, things. Okay, I'm not accepting it as written in the stars. I don't think Alan is either. We're just, we're looking at how the dynamics play out. Who do you think, do you have like, who is your top pick? If you had to guess, right? Who, I, I have no idea. Trump? That's the whole point. Yes, you do. You well, have no, an idea. Oh, that's cheating because then if because if you like if you poll people on like Joe Biden or a generic Democrat, right, or like Donald Trump versus a generic Democrat, Joe Biden versus a generic Republican, the generic always does better. <laughs> but the the point is that you have a contest to bring forward multiple narratives and test them to see who actually stands a chance. If you want to see who in the Republican primary stands the best chance to have to beat Donald Trump, you want to have a competitive race. And it's good to have candidates entering this race consciously saying we're going to differentiate ourselves from Donald Trump by challenging aspects of his most problematic behavior. That's the part where I think this is actually a really healthy thing to happen for the Republican Party. And to get fundraising base raised up around those perspectives, to socialize them, to normalize them in this primary context. You know, we thought Liz Cheney might do this, and she hasn't jumped to the race and doesn't seem like she's likely to. And not for for bad reasons, but we have other people now, this late stage, picking up this mantle that weren't willing to do it just a month or two ago. I think that's can, can we raise the terms of the bet? <laughs> Quinta really wants to it take is, Scott's like money. Like a hundred dollars, <laughs> or like I, you buy me a nice dinner, dinner or something. Dinner at Le Diplomat. How's that? Yes. Since I've never gotten to go. <laughs> My point. The point is that it's not even that. It's like Donald Trump. It is a. It's just a fundamental. Yeah idea about if we want this, like our democracy is healthier when you have two parties that actually embrace certain values. And you've got to have a race where people are articulating these values and you got to find the candidate that can do it. But Scott, that, that, is a, that is a normative argument with which I agree, but I think it is not descriptive of what is actually happening. Yeah, like I, I, this is all very schoolhouse rock stuff. Like, I, mean, like I, I, think, I think it ignores the fact, honestly, look, look, I, I, look everything you're saying is true subject to not dealing with Donald Trump, right? Like, I, look, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump changes everything, but to be perfectly honest, he's changed a lot. And like one of the things that I think you cannot ignore is that his favorability, unfavorability, name recognition ratings have been essentially completely static for six or seven years now, right? With one notable dip after January 6th that went away after two months. And so to me, what that tells me is that like Donald Trump just is a force that changes the fundamental rules of American politics and that all of the sort of, you know, in a normal electric, you'd have this person come out and have their 10 minutes, then this person come out and have their 10 minutes. Like that just doesn't apply here. And so the best chance to defeat Donald Trump, which again, I I don't think that if we had all gotten behind Ron DeSantis, right, it would be particularly likely he'd defeat Donald Trump. Like I think Donald Trump was always going to be almost certainly the next nominee, but I just don't see a way in which having like, you know, this candidate, this candidate, this candidate, this candidate makes it more likely that someone will defeat Donald Trump. I, I will I will agree. I will I will agree with that January 30th 
2024 before you have the primary election. You will agree at the dip when you are pouring me a glass of, of red wine that you have before purchased that, for me. Before that, it is a nonsense argument that doesn't actually reflect the way these things have worked in the past. It's based upon a fictionalized vision of how Donald Trump's going to impact us that we've never dealt with because of unique circumstances. But the actual data points we have suggest that a competition is the way you get new ideas and new people into a race. The marketplace of ideas. And, and the bummer of an idea that we can't pre-select one candidate, like whatever candidate we think is the strongest to beat Donald Trump and that's the way to do it. That's a farce. Complete farce. You're a it's farce. Just Scott, not you're buying you're a farce. Center. Your face is a farce. That may be the case. <laughs> well, we'll have to leave the conversation there for now. But tune in for what I think will be an interesting set of debates on the Republican oh side God. over the next few months to come. Is, is Trump going to go to those? Do we think Trump's going to go to the debates? That is a bigger question. That's an interesting I question. It. I doubt, I doubt it, it, too. I, doubt I, don't it. Think it, I don't think it's a sign of strength, again. Because then you got a whole stage of people who can criticize Donald Trump and no one to respond. Yeah, so they're he's all a talking crazy about Donald person. Trump. So, so Donald Trump gets people to talk about Donald Trump when he's not even on the stage. Guys, he's, he's a genius. He's a wizard. Oh, my God. He's another wizard. I'm telling you. Okay. We are sadly out of time for today, um, but we would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons for the week to come. Alan, what do you have to share with us for this week? So my object lesson is the author, Amor Tolls, a very well-known fiction author. Um, He's written three books, uh, and I am currently in the middle of the third one that he's uh, written and quite enjoying it. They're not, they're not connected. They're just three different books, but I thought I'd recommend them because they are such lovely fiction, um, you know, beautifully written, wonderful characterization, just very entertaining too. So the, the three books he's written were our rules of civility, which was in 2011, which is about uh, uh, sort of the end of the, uh, the thirties in New York city and high society. Um, then he wrote, I think his most famous book so far, a gentleman in Moscow, which is a book about a former uh, Russian aristocrat who is basically put under house arrest in the last remaining fancy hotel in Moscow after the Bolshevik revolution. Uh, It's amazing. It's like a 400 page book that entirely takes place in a hotel. And it's just wonderfully fascinating. I think they're turning, I think Ian McGregor is turning it into like a TV series at the end of the year, which should be really, really good. And then I'm currently reading his latest book, which published a few years ago called The Lincoln Highway, um, set in the 1950s uh, about sort of a cross-country trip uh, for uh, two brothers. They're just really lovely books. And as someone who, when he reads fiction, likes to read, you know, well-written, good plot, good character, like is not not a good fan, not, not a huge fan of sort of high modernist fiction or especially not postmodernist fiction. It's really nice to just read good stories. So highly recommended any, any of those books. I, I think I would start with The Gentleman in Moscow. Um, it's probably the best of the three, but they're all really excellent. Quinta, what do you have for us? I would like to recommend a piece in The Atlantic that uh, has apparently dethroned uh, one time recently former CNN CEO Chris Licht. This is a profile in The Atlantic by uh, Tim Alberta of Chris Licht uh, called Inside the Meltdown at CNN. And boy, does it deliver on that title. It's about 15,000 words and just goes in excruciating detail into how Licht has mishandled basically every aspect of his time at CNN over the last year or so, uh, to an extent that after the fact, I think, led to a lot of folks in media asking, why did Licht agree to give Alberta access to this? Like, did he realize what was happening here? Um, After the profile came out, a lot of folks said, you know, Licht's days were numbered. And lo and behold, they apparently were, because on Wednesday, it was announced that he was out. 
But I, I highly recommend the article. It's a, just an unbelievably damning picture of CNN, of Lick's ownership. Um, it's a great piece of writing. Um, and I think that there's some interesting and troubling stuff there about, you know, wither the media post 2016, 2020. But also, it's just really fun to read about people who are bad at their jobs and don't realize it. It is a very compelling piece. And there's been very good coverage from Brian Stelter and Dylan Byers and a lot of other folks about this pretty crazy internecine battle. Oh, internecine is the right way to describe it. Crazy battle inside CNN uh, over the last few weeks, uh, inside and outside. Well, for my object lesson, I am going a little closer to home. A good friend of mine, Amon George, uh, a buddy of mine since from childhood, uh, who uh, is also an ANC rep here in DC um, and has helped me sue the president in the past, among other things, uh, fun projects. He is an e-bike fanatic and has been prevailing upon me to purchase one for a long time, even let me one for the last few months um, to use to get back and forth to work. And lo and behold, I got to say, I really love it. Uh, and I'm getting on this fad that started, I guess, mostly during the pandemic, but uh, it's a great way to get around the city, particularly DC, which is a relatively small city. It's economical. It is easy to do compared to a regular bike in a suit or a sports jacket, which is how I usually find myself biking to the office, uh, which made regular biking a little uncomfortable, but this is lovely and phenomenal. But Aman has put together an incredible resource that he put in a Twitter thread that includes, I think not one, but two, maybe even three different PowerPoint slides or decks. He's a former consultant, forgive him, uh, that outline a lot of advice for people interested in buying e-bikes, using e-bikes, why you should use e-bikes, why cities should improve infrastructure around biking and e-bikes, uh, and all sorts of endorsements. It's really a phenomenal resource for people interested in this from a policy perspective or just an interested in buying a bike, which I often, I recently did with his help. So I encourage people to check it out. I'm going to make that my object lesson. Uh, give e-bikes a try. Even if you tried, I like biking generally. Um, but if you find, you know, biking to be like a little too sweaty or inconvenient as a way to get back and forth to the office, uh, if it's like a few too many miles away, e-bikes a great solution. I got to say, I, I found I really like it. It's actually great for city biking too, because when you have to stop every single block and start again, that's the most annoying part about biking in a city. E-bikes make it super easy because you can get off, get your acceleration going pretty quickly and get back up to speed. And I honestly get to the office like in half the time that I did on a regular bike when I bike in. So encourage folks to check that out. And with that, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rascal Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for our information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RETL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast, among other special benefits. Our audio engineer producer this week was Kara Schellen of Goat Rodeo and our music as always was performed by Sophia Yan we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell on behalf of my co-host Alan Quinta I am Scott R. Anderson and we will talk to you next week until then goodbye hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.